Now we come here to the 26th Psalm. Now, David was confessing his sins in the last one, and David was a great sinner. But in this Psalm, he's talking about his righteousness. And that was something that David had, and we have righteousness today. I'm sure you have. I don't know about you, I have a perfect righteousness, but it's not Vernon McGee's. I'm told the Lord Jesus Christ has been made unto me righteousness, and that's as well as redemption. That's on the plus side of the ledger. And I stand complete in him, accepted in the beloved. And that's what it means to pray in his name. It's to present his work, his merit, and who he is. Notice now Psalm 26. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Test my heart and my mind. This is a marvelous psalm. It's a psalm that speaks of David's walk. Actually, after David's one sin, he didn't live in sin anymore. Now, if you'd gone over to Babylon... The king of Babylon lived in sin like David committed one time. The king of Babylon committed it every day. But David didn't live in it. It was an awful thing in David's life. And it's the reason it stands out. It's just like a lump of coal in a snowbank. Because the rest of David's life stands out. And he becomes the example for the nation Israel, for the kings. And every king after him was judged like that. He either walked in the steps of his father David or he didn't. And if he did, he was accepted. And this psalm, I think, reminds us of the first psalm a great deal. Because, listen to it, "...judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I trusted also in the Lord. And it was the faith in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide." Not that he was so strong, he knew he wasn't, but he knew that When he trusted the Lord, the Lord would sustain him. Now, again, we have this. From thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. What a glorious, wonderful psalm that you have here. And I have walked in thy truth. In the first psalm, the negative side. Blessed is the man that walketh not. Well, he says here, I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons. Neither will I go in with dissemblers. What a picture here. He didn't sit with false persons. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Now he says, I have not sat with the false persons. Neither will I go in with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I'll wash my hands in innocence, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. And a life needs to back up faith. And how important this psalm is in that connection. Maybe that's the reason this section is not so important and so popular today, because this demands a life. And he says now here, the last verse, notice it, my foot standeth in an even place in the congregations will I bless the Lord. Now, his foot standeth in an even place. That means that he's sure-footed now. He's established on a rock. The 
even place speaks of that. You know, if you're on the side of a hill, it's slippery. You have to fall. A lot of Christians are standing there today, and they're playing with evil. They get close to it, like the little boy that one night his mother heard a noise back in the kitchen. And she said, Willie, where are you? He said, I'm in the pantry. She said, what are you doing? He says, I'm fighting temptation. Now, friends, that's not the place to fight temptation. You need to get out of that. And there are a lot of Christians today flirt with sin. Some time ago, I think I shared this letter with listeners, but I can give the incident. I never give the place. It's somewhere in the United States. This woman wrote me about how her husband died, and a friend of the husband, their friend had been so close to them, he became the one who handled the estate. And it was necessary for her to meet with him. And before long, as she put it, the chemistry began to react. And she began to care for him. He began to care for her. And she saw herself in trouble. She wrote, what shall I do? I said, you're in a burning building. You jump out just quickly as you can. If I were you, would get out of that town. Have a letter from her from way off in another place. She left. She got away. She said, you know, I would have fallen had I stayed there. You know, it's well to have your feet on even ground, friends. Where are you standing today? The reason a great many people fall their fight and temptation in the pantry. That's no place to do it. Now we come to the wonderful 27th Psalm. This is a deeply spiritual psalm, and this is one that is familiar to many of you, because the minute I give the first verse, I can see your face light up because this is familiar. Now, this psalm divides itself very naturally into two major divisions. We have, first of all, the provision that God makes for the encouragement and confidence of his own. And that's verses 1 down through verse 6. And then through the remainder of this psalm, we have the prayer, which is a prayer for help and sustenance. You see, the one here who has the confidence is going to go to the source and prayer, talk to him about the need. Now, it opens in this very marvelous way. It's probably one of the most spiritual of the psalms. And when I say that, I recognize that smacks just a little of what I'd like for it not to sound like. And that is that it's sort of for the hoity-toity of believers. And I don't think that at all. But I rather think that this is a psalm that has a message for many hearts and lives today. Now it opens on this grand note. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And you notice again, there is he and me here. The Lord is my light. He and me. It's one thing to say, God is light. Now, who is it? The Lord is my light, and he's my salvation. That means he is the one who loves me, because love provided a Savior. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Now, he doesn't save us by love, but love 
provided a Savior for us so we could be saved. Now, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Now, we have in the epistle of 1 John, we have three definitions of God. God is light, God is love, and God is life. And all three are here that the psalmist recognizes. He is my light. He's a holy God. And he is the one that directs and guides me by the light of his word. Because the word, the psalmist will say later, it's a light to us and a lamp to us and the pathway of life. And my salvation speaks of the love of God because it was the love of God that provided a salvation for us. And that salvation is only, of course, through Jesus Christ. And John 3:16, God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son. God didn't so love the world, he saved the world. God so loved the world, he provided a salvation for sinners, and they have to come this way. And that salvation is conditioned, and that's the salvation that David's talking about. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? My light, my salvation. And then the Lord is the strength of my life. And he gives life. He not only gives life, he empowers us to live that life down here. All of that is wrapped up in actually this very first verse here. And of whom shall I be afraid? Now, he goes on, he says, "...when the wicked, even mine enemies, my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell." And David, again, I think here, is looking back upon his life at the time that his life was in danger. And David started out as a shepherd boy with his life in danger when he went out made an attack upon a lion and a bear. And that's something you just don't do every day. I don't know about you, I just don't meet a lion and a bear every day. And when I do, I hope he's on the other side of the cage. But there are a lot of these wild animals that are walking our streets today, and a lot of them would seek to devour you. And then there's that old lion, the devil, like a roaring lion. He's going up and down, seeking whom he may devour. Now, we find here, then, when we come to verse 3, Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. That is, his confidence is in God. And this is the provision that God has made for his own today. Have you ever noticed that every time the Lord Jesus would break through to speak to his apostles after his resurrection, it was fear not. Fear not. You and I have a resurrected Savior today, and I think fear comes to us many times. I have to remind myself when I'm flying in a plane, because I don't enjoy it. I have a natural fear of height. I just don't go and look over the side of a building. I'm afraid I'll jump off, and I don't want to do that. And I just have to remind myself when I'm up there and on that bus with those great big wheels, that's in the sky, I tell the Lord, I say to him, at the time you were here with me, my confidence is in you. And it helps a great deal.
Now, will you notice what he says in verse 4? This is a wonderful verse. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Now, this is a rich verse. David whittled his life down to one point. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And you remember Paul did that for his life. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This day of just whittling your life down like whittling a pencil, down where you can write with it. Just keep whittling. And today our lives are so complicated. I find, and it did most of my life, I always felt like Martha in the kitchen. You know, she was cumbered with much serving. Poor Martha. She reached for this pot to cook something in, and then she reached for a pan to boil something in, and she reached for something else to peel potatoes, and by that time something fell out of the cupboard, and I tell you, she's frustrated, trying to do everything and everything at once. My, how complicated life has become for many of us today, and we're frustrated, under tension and pressure all the time. Wonderful to get it down one thing have I desired of the Lord. Have you got your life reduced now to the lowest common denominator today? May I say to you, and I hope you won't mind me speaking out of a personal experience, the happiest time of my ministry began when I retired. And I want to add to that. The most spiritually profitable time began at that moment. I have seen more folk turn to Christ in this brief interval than any other five-year period in my life. I have never rejoiced so. And you know what? i got my life down now where I say, one thing I want to do, and that is radio. That's all I'm doing. I just have got it whittled down to that, and I'm hipped on it. I believe today the Word of God needs to be gotten out, and this is my bag, if you want that. This is the one thing I do. But you notice what it was for David. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, David, I don't think, intended to take his sleeping bag and sleep in the tabernacle. And I don't believe today that it means that we should sleep in the church pew, especially during the service. We ought not to sleep there. But what he's saying is this. It was his trip to the tabernacle. You remember he brought it up to Jerusalem, the ark, and put it in a tent. And David wanted to build a temple for God. Why? Because of the fact through that he had access to God. And that's the important thing for us today. That is the thing that we ought to rejoice in. That's the thing that will enable us to whittle life down to one point. Paul gives to us the benefits of being justified by faith. He says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's one of the things. But he's going to enumerate, actually, eight things there. And do you know what is number two? Just happens to be access to God. What a wonderful thing it is we have access to God. 
And Paul mentions that there. Paul says, "...by whom also we have access by faith into this grace." And that's what David's talking about. David says, I want to go to the house of God. There's a mercy seat there. He needed mercy. And I need mercy. I'm sure you do. There was an altar there that speaks of the cross of Christ. And David says, I want to go there. I can approach God. And through the Lord Jesus today, we have access into this marvelous grace. And it's a privilege to have access to God. This is a wonderful psalm. No wonder it's been such a wonderful blessing to God's people, especially as verse 5 says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Where's the secret place of the tabernacle? It was inside that holy place. No one got in there but the high priest. You know what was in there? The ark. And above it was just the top for the box. But it's a mercy seat. Mercy seat because blood was poured there. And he hides us in a mercy seat. We have today a mercy seat to go to. That's where he hides us. What a wonderful place to go today. And now he says in verse 6, Now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Oh, what a glorious, wonderful thing when we get this picture and recognize what he's done for us. It puts a song in our hearts. Then we have, beginning with verse 7, his prayer. Oh, this leads him to pray. And he says, "'Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice.'" Have mercy also upon me, answer me. You see, in that secret place, there was mercy. And there is that secret place for us to come and receive the mercy of God. Now he says, when thou saidest, seek ye my face. David puts the invitation in the Lord's mouth. He says here, seek ye my face. And David says, I've already responded. My heart said, Under thee thy face, Lord, will I seek. God today has a longing for you. Do you respond to that? It's awful to live with a person and you don't express your love and there isn't that communication of love. That's what marriage is. (laughs) Marriage is not an arrangement whereby a woman gets a living and a man gets a cook. That may be in the deal, generally is, but... That's not marriage. Marriage is when it's a love relationship. And if it's not that, it's not anything at all. And actually, our relationship to God should be like that. David says, my heart, just responding. When God says, I love you, David says, I love you. When God says, I want to have fellowship with you, David says, I want to have fellowship with you. And then he says, hide not thy face far from me. David knew what it was for God to hide his face. When he sinned, he lost his fellowship, lost his joy. That's what he prayed for. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And then this next verse has been misunderstood. Verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And the critic has come along. Even Dalich took the position that probably, he didn't say it, you know, out loud. He just suggested that this could have been written by someone else. 
because the explanation that's been given, well, David's father and mother never forsook him. But I don't think that's what David is saying here. I think that it could better be translated, and you'll notice it's a temporal clause anyway, when my father and my mother forsake me. Well, when do they? Well, they never did for David. And I think it'd be better to translate, had my father and my mother forsaken me. Had they done it. And that's in a translation that I have here, and I like that much better. I wish the Schofield revisers who made the new Schofield Bible had called attention to that, because they make it so much different. Had my father and my mother forsaken me? Well, they didn't forsake me, but should they? The Lord will take me up. And some wise acre a few years ago put it like this. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Boy Scouts will take me up. And I'm afraid today that a great many parents are letting organizations, including the church, raise their children. I don't care whether you are a member of a good Bible church. The children are yours. You are the one that should lead them to the Lord. And not that Sunday school teacher or that preacher either. You are the one. And... You are the one that should give them your time and give them your attention. That's what he's saying, I think, here. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemy. David says, I want my testimony before the enemy because I know he'll criticize. I want you to watch over me, Lord, and help me not to stump my toe. Deliver me not over into the will of mine enemies. For false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. Now, I was brought up in a denomination that has since gone into liberalism. And I was in a denomination that's gone into liberalism. I always prayed to the Lord, Lord, do not let me fall into the position where I'm at the mercy of church leaders or even a church board. And in my entire ministry, which began about 1930 and ended about 1970, I guess, and that's a long time, friends, about 40 years, during that entire time, God never let me get in a position where I was at the mercy of man. And that's what David is praying. And my heart goes out to many ministers today that find themselves at the mercy maybe of a church board or a hierarchy. And I know several like that. My heart goes out to them today. And I urge them to pray like David did. Don't deliver me into the will of my enemies. Don't let them get me down and pin my shoulders to the mat, Lord. And I think that he'll hear and answer that prayer. And David said, I'd fainted unless I'd believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And even in this world today, you can see the goodness of the Lord, how wonderful it is. Now he says, what are we to do? Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, there's a lot of heart trouble today among believers. It's known as faint-hearted, or the coward's heart, as it's known. All of us, I guess, have a little touch of it. And what are we to do? Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And what will he do? He's going to strengthen our heart. He's really the great heart specialist 
today. Now in Psalm 28, I'm just going to take a minute for this very wonderful psalm here. It contains a cry, and the man's in trouble here, and it's a prayer for judgment upon the enemies and of a deliverance that's coming. And it's a tremendous picture that we have in this psalm. It's preliminary, really, to the next one. But I'm just hitting the high points. Verse 1, under thee will I cry, O Lord, my rock. Be not silent to me. And a rock is what in Moses' great song, when they cross the Red Sea, he speaks of the rock, God being our rock. A rock is something to stand on. It's a foundation. We have a foundation. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is Christ Jesus. Now he says, verse 2, Hear the voice of my supplication. When I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. Well, somebody's going to say that's the tabernacle. I agree with that and the mercy seat that's in it. It's the mercy seat that you and I need to cling to today. Now I drop down to verse 6, and he says, Blessed be the Lord, because he hath heard the voice of my supplication. God hears and answers prayer. And as a result, David now says in verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoiced, and my song will I praise him. Now, there are several things important. God is power. He's mighty. And God is a shield for protection. Power and protection. But is he my power? Is he my protection? Then if he is, in the only way can be, my heart trusted in him, and I'm helped. He'll hear and answer prayer. And then what happens? And with my song will I praise him. We'll be able to praise him. And then he concludes by saying in verse 9, Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Oh, how glorious and wonderful this psalm is here. Why, you just take off in this psalm, you can see. Now today, as we come to the 29th psalm, we come to a nature psalm. It's not the first one that we've had. We had in Psalm 8, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars that thou hast made. And that's a night psalm. It's to be read on a good, clear night. And then Psalm 19 was a nature psalm. Heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. And the sun's like a bridegroom. <laughs> That's to be read at high noon. And it's a daytime psalm. But Psalm 29 is a psalm for the storm, because this is a psalm that describes a storm. And here you have, during a storm, the gloom of a tempest, the thunder rolls, the lightning flashes, and there's terror on every side. This is a storm like several years ago. I don't know how long ago. It wasn't too long ago when Camille hit the Gulf Coast down the other side of New Orleans, around Gulfport, Mississippi. And that hurricane hurled its might against the coast there and did millions of dollars worth of damage. And in an apartment there, a group of 
couples decided to have a hurricane party. It was a great big beer bus. They all began to drink and, I suppose, got drunk. And it's too bad they didn't read Psalm 29. That's the psalm for Camille. And I think most of those people were killed when that storm hit. Well, if you're really afraid of a storm, there's a very pragmatic reason then for you to read this psalm. It's a message for the time of a storm down here in nature. And many folk who listen to this program are in a section of the country where even today they're subject to storms like this. Now, the structure of this psalm is quite interesting. fact of the matter is we have the structure of it, and I'd like to look at it like this. First, the structure of the psalm, the setting of the psalm, and the subject of the psalm. Now, in Hebrew poetry, and this is Hebrew poetry of the highest order, Ewald said this psalm is elaborated with a symmetry of which no more perfect specimen exists in Hebrew. And Dalich called this psalm the psalm of the seven thunders. And he mentioned the fact it's the time of a thunderstorm. And Dr. Peroni said this psalm is a magnificent description of a thunderstorm. It's mighty march from north to south, the desolation and terror which it causes, the peal of thunder, the flash of lightning, the gathering fury, and lull of the elements are vividly depicted. And end of that quotation. So this is a psalm that is a psalm of Hebrew poetry and describing a storm. Now, Hebrew poetry is not attained by rhyming. That's the way we get poetry today, words that sound alike. Here's an example. It's one of these little ditties. I shoot the hippopotamus with bullets made of platinum. If I use lead ones, his hide was sure to flatten them. Now, that's our kind of poetry. That's not exactly Shakespeare, but it's poetry for us today. Now, Hebrew poetry is attained by what is known as parallelism. That is, repeating an idea in a different way and generally amplifying it, enlarging upon it. Now, this psalm sweeps along with all the freedom and majesty of a storm. There's sort of a lilting triumph here, a glorious abandon, a courageous exultation. Now, I divide this psalm here into the prologue and the epilogue and the subject. The first two verses are a prologue. And when you read those, it goes like this. Here's the prologue. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, David here lifts our thoughts to the very highest. Now, the epilogue is the last two verses. And here you have, in verses 10 and 11, this language. The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Now, you see, that storm with all of its fury lashed across the land. But Jehovah was still in control. And the storms of life break today. And he's still in control. 
Now we come to the subject, and from verses 3 to 10, you have here the voice of the Lord. And seven times the voice of the Lord is mentioned. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Now, that is the division that we have. Now, we've said a word about the beginning and the end, and notice the setting here of the psalm. Now, David wrote this psalm, and he was an outdoor man. He was not bottled up in an office or not held down to a throne. He was not outdoors here, however, because when this storm came, he was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was beautiful for situation. He was up at Mount Zion, the highest point, had a palace of cedar. He could view the whole land, and he could look up yonder to the northeast, and he could see this cloud that was beginning to gather, and a storm was getting ready to break. I think that most of us are acquainted with the geography of the Holy Land. And if you're not, why don't you turn right now to the map in the back of your Bible? And we're told here something about the waters. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. Now, the Mediterranean Sea, as you look at your maps on your left, and yonder in the north there is the Lebanon, two ranges of mountains, the anti-Lebanon range. And then there's Mount Carmel up there, Hyphen, Mount Hermon, and the Sea of Galilee. Now you have on the east, Sea of Galilee, Valley of Esdraelon, Jordan is there to the right and to the east, the Dead Sea. And then there is Mount Ebal and Gerizim and Samaria and the rugged terrain that's immediately north. Bethel and Ai and Anaphoth, right north of Jerusalem. Now, you're in Jerusalem, and to the west, again, you see Joppa. To the east, you see Jericho. And to the south, there's the wilderness of Judea, and it's frightful and ominous. And David and Amos knew how to survive in that wilderness. There was a bishop from San Francisco several years ago. He wasn't able to survive there. In fact, that's where he perished. David would have known how to have gotten by. Now we come to the subject, and this is important now. The thunderstorm that swept over the entire land. And this is certainly a magnificent description of a thunderstorm, as Ewald puts it. Now we have three strophes here. Verses 3 and 4. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Now, that's the beginning of the storm. Way up there in the northwest, there's distant thunder. There's lightning. The storm is gathering. And then we see the storm now breaking because by this time, the storm is moving down and the voice of Jehovah's the thunder. And David is there in the palace in Jerusalem. And he sees that storm gathering in the distance in the northwest. Clouds, as they begin to gather, and the wind begins to blow, then they become black and angry clouds. And 
hide the sun, and it's as dark as midday. And then there's the low rumble of the thunder and the flash of the lightning, and it's streaked and forked. It's not a summer shower, not an ordinary storm. It's like Camille a few years ago. And then it breaks on the Mediterranean coast. Waves roll high. It breaks with the sound of a cannon on the shore. And the angry waves mount up, and then the storm strikes inland. And you see the mighty march from north to south. And Jerusalem will not escape, and it comes closer. The voice of the Lord's powerful. You can now hear that thunder. It shakes everything. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty, awe-inspiring. And it strikes the cedars of Lebanon, the lightning does. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. And that thunder rolls and rumbles. Lebanon is shaken and the trees are struck by lightning. And Mount Hermon is just shaken because it's just like a dog shakes a rabbit. And the storm draws near in its majestic and its awe-inspiring approach. And it rolls along with the rhythm of the thunder and the lightning over the hills. Here it comes my friend, as it begins to roll. And will you notice this? We have here verse 6, "...he maketh them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire." Now the lightning is near now. Forked lightning pops and crackles like heavy guns in a battle. And the storm breaks with all its fury. It's a savage hurricane that slams against Jerusalem. The shutters are slammed too. Streets are deserted. And it's the lull before the storm now. And you have the hush before the sledgehammer blow comes. Only the barking of a dog in the distance of the Kidron Valley can be heard. And now it comes. Rain descends in torrents. The savage winds hurl themselves against the walls of Jerusalem. A shutter breaks loose, banging and making a tremendous noise. David has been through this before, and he waits patiently, listens to the voice of Jehovah. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. Now the storm, you see, is passing over, and the rains let up, and the winds die down, and the people begin to open their shutters. The storm is departing, but it's now advancing upon the wilderness of Judea to the south and to the west. Kadesh is down there. Storm now spent in the wilderness of Sinai. The air is fresh, and you hear the roar of the water down in the Kidron Valley. Now listen to verse 9. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve, and strippeth bare the forest, and in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. Now it did accomplish some good. Animals were frightened, causing some animals that were carrying young to give birth. There was no prolonged pain. But it also caused some people to go to the temple that haven't been doing that for a long time. And they went there to call upon God. Now the storm dies away, disappears in the south. Now we have the epilogue here. 
Verse 10, The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. God was in charge of the storm all the time. God was in charge at the flood. And now in verse 11, The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Now, the Lord is the one who gives strength. Oh, the power of God in a storm. And that same God can strengthen those. And it will enable them to go through the storms of life and know what the peace is afterward. Now, I'm sure that you've anticipated me because as we've gone through the Psalms, why, I've called attention to this before. The application, I think, is here. The great tribulation is ahead for these people, but God will see them through it. Armageddon is coming. The enemy comes from the north and will cover the land. That's a wonderful message. That's that, but as a message for you and me today. Now, you see that you and I today, we belong to a new creation. We do not belong to the old creation. We belong to the last Adam. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away, and all things have become new. That's the reason I don't keep the Sabbath day. It belongs to the old creation. And somebody says, when was the Sabbath day changed? It never was changed. We've been changed. We now join to a living Christ, and our new day is the first day of the week. It's the day of resurrection. And now Adam was given dominion over creation. He lost it, and Christ has recovered it. And this old creation, therefore, it furnishes us a pattern, and it's an illustration for us. And I think the message is here for us today. Now, there are storms in the new creation, spiritual storms, storms that threaten to destroy us. You that are God's children, you've been through the storms, and some of you even now are in a storm. And the last Adam, he's master of the storm. He went through the storms with his own. Remember, he saw them toiling and rowing when he sent them that night across the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that he came to them in the storm. And they cried out, Carest thou not that we perish? And he quieted the storm. He doesn't always quiet the storm for his friends, but he whispers to us and says, We're going to make the harbor. That's important. And I think today... Those that are in a storm, there's a little Eskimo mother way up in Alaska. She's listening to this program right now. She lost a son in the war over at Vietnam. Snowed in in the wintertime. And she wrote and told me about listening to the program and how it was helping her carry through. May I say to you, she's going through a storm up there. But God's going to see her through it. Storm's going to be over one of these days. And there's a family here in Southern California. And I know what they're going through. They're in a storm. There's a broker up yonder in San Francisco. He wrote me and told me. And a wife wrote some time ago, I think I would have lost my mind if it wasn't for the fact the Lord Jesus stood by me. I was over in Flagstaff, Arizona some time ago. And while I was preaching, there was a storm that gathered. And then by the time it was time for me to leave, And I was taking the train. Thank the Lord I wasn't flying out of there. And I went down to catch a train. Oh, friend, the thunder, the lightning, the rain. That came down. And then 
Before the train came in, the moon came out. It was so beautiful, so wonderful. Are you going through a storm? Two things. He's going to see you through it. <laughs> and then the storm's going to be over, friends. Someday the storm will be over. Now, that brings me to the 30th chapter. And again today, I'm just going to hit the high points of this chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. And it's a psalm of praise and worship. You see, there's an order here in the psalms. And we said this is a segment that belongs together. And after the storm of life is over, there's a psalm. And this is a sort of a song of dedication. Some have thought that David wrote this because of the time he brought up the tabernacle into Jerusalem. Others, when he dedicated that spot, the threshing floor around where the temple was to be built, and then, after all, God had said to him, I'm going to make of you a house. I'm going to build you a house, David. And maybe it was that that he's talking about in this wonderful psalm. Anyway, the children of Israel, even today, in a Jewish ritual at the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, that refers to First Maccabees 4.52, why this psalm is read because it's a psalm of dedication. And listen to it. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up. What a wonderful thing. And hast not made my foe to rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried unto thee, thou hast healed me. Now, it's the belief of a great many that this man David had been sick, as Hezekiah was, and God had raised him up. I'm of the opinion that's true, but we have no record of what that sickness was at all. But we're told here that God healed him. And this psalm I like because God did the same thing for me in such a wonderful way. I want to tell you about it in detail sometime when I have time. But verse 3, O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from Sheol. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. May I say to you, I don't know about you, I can sing this psalm. I can't sing, but I can at least say this psalm has a meaning for me. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of what? His love, his goodness, no, his holiness. Our God's a holy God. We ought to thank him for that, that a holy God will deal with us. For his anger endureth but a moment. And you see, the storm will be over. And even if he judges us, and I found out that he's taken me to the woodshed on two or three occasions. My dad used to do that. I was accustomed to it when my dad died and I was 14. And then just shortly after that, I came to the Lord. And then he's been taking me to the woodshed ever since. And it's not easy, friends, but his anger doesn't last forever. It's just for a moment. And then he says down here, verse 8, I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? And I told the Lord that. I said, Lord, I'd love to stay in this life. I'm going to be with you a long time when I get there, but I'd love to stay down here. David talked like that. I feel akin to this man here, especially when he talks like this. Friends, you'll find a psalm that fits you. I believe that every person can find a psalm that'll be just your size. This one's my size. Listen to him to the end that my glory 
may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. I don't think I could improve on that with saying anything but what David said, because this is what I want to say, and I hope it's what you want to say. Now, friends, I come to the 31st Psalm, and I'm going rather slowly, as you can see through this section, and I trust that you'll understand the reason is that we have been moving through a section where most of the psalms, not all of them, but most of them are very unfamiliar. And yet, here are some of the richest portions of the Word of God. And my feeling is that if a proper emphasis was given in this section, it would, I think, give a different perspective of Scripture, and especially relative to God's purposes in the nation Israel. Now, most of the psalms, in fact, practically, all of them that we have looked at so far have been composed and written by David. And I'm sure music went with all of these psalms. Now, back in the 30th psalm, and there's a connection in all of these here, I call this psalm, and I had to treat it so lightly last time, it's the Hallelujah for Healing. And this is more or less my psalm. And it ought to be the psalm of this great cancer club, across this country today, a folk who've had cancer, and the Lord has permitted them to live. And I certainly can join in this psalm here. And let me just lift out this again, because it is so wonderful. Verse 2, O Lord, my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from Sheol, that is the grave. Thou hast kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit, that is, to the grave. And then he says, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. And I'm thinking about organizing a chorus called the Cancer Chorus of people all across this country that have had this great, awful monster attack them, and yet God has sustained them. I find myself in the hands of God, but I can say today with David here, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints. Now, I can't sing, but it'd be wonderful to get together, all of us that have had cancer, and lift our hearts in praise to God. This is my psalm, and it'll be the psalm of many of you that are listening today. How wonderful it is. And give thanks in remembrance of His holiness. Now, God didn't heal us because we were some special little pet of his. And he didn't heal us because we're a preacher. He didn't heal us because we're teaching the Bible. He did it because of the fact he's a holy God and he maintains his holiness. He recognizes I'm a sinner and he has saved me by his grace. And he hadn't lowered his standard one bit. And again, I say, hallelujah for healing this is the way I like it, because I can praise now my great physician, and I don't have to praise some man down here, or some woman for that matter, and I don't have to go to them. I go to the great physician, oh, my sick friend today. Take your case to the great physician, and then call in the best doctor 
down here you can get because our great physician gave him all the skill that he has, whether he recognizes it or not. My doctor recognizes it. I come on over now to this 31st Psalm, and here you have the troubles of the godly. We've had a great deal of that so far. But after all, the godly have a lot of troubles, don't they? The ones I know do, and I'm sure that's true of most of us today. Now, this is a psalm that speaks in the past of the troubles of David. It looks to the future, and it speaks of the troubles that'll come to the nation Israel in the great tribulation period. And then it speaks to the present, my troubles, your troubles, as a message, you see. These psalms are so rich and wonderful, and I have found that when I've been sick or when I'm in bed at night and can't sleep, I don't know why I've always turned to the psalms. And generally, in this section here, my, they're great comfort and a great help. Listen to this 31st one now, because it's a great psalm that we have before us. He says, "...in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness." Now, David knew that God could not lower his standard in saving sin, and that sin required a penalty. And if the sinner didn't pay it, somebody else would have. And God now has a plan. He can save sinners because somebody else paid the penalty, and that somebody is his son. Now, because of that, David goes on and says, "'Bow down thine ear to me, deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock, for an house of defense to save me.'" We need a strong rock, not just some little pebble. Lord Jesus said, "'On this rock I will build my church.'" What is that rock? Christ. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is Christ Jesus, our Savior today. Now, he's the strong rock to rest on. The dear little Scotch lady who was talking about her salvation and the assurance of it. And somebody says, well, don't you ever frighten? Oh, she says, there are times when I tremble on the rock, but the rock never trembles under me. A strong rock. Now, he's not through with the rock, by the way, and this is not rock music we're talking about, although this psalm was set to music. Well, maybe you could call this the first rock music, but it's a little different than the kind we have today. Verse 3, "...for thou art my rock." My, is God your rock? Is that where you're resting today? And he says, not only that, "...thou art my rock and my fortress." Now, a fortress is for protection. We need that. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Not because he's David the king, but because for his name's sake. That's what it means to pray in the name of Christ today. He says, pull me out of the net that they've laid secretly for me, for thou art my strength. And then, listen to him, into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Remember, that was the word the Lord Jesus gave on the cross. We have here so many wonderful statements, but here is one that we just can't pass by. And into thine hand I commit my spirit. And the Lord Jesus said that. Father, into thy hands I commit 
that spirit. And Stephen, the first martyr, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And it's quite interesting, down in the history of the church, many that have been martyrs have always used that expression. For instance, when the sentence of degradation was being executed upon John Huss, and the bishop there pronounced upon him these horrible words. He says, And now we commit thy soul to the devil. And John Huss, in great calmness, he stood there and replied, I commit my spirit into thy hands, Lord Jesus Christ. Under thee I commend my spirit, whom thou hast redeemed. And Polycarp, when he was being burned at the stake there in Smyrna, these are his words, too. Bernard used them. Jerome of Prague used it. And Luther and Melanchthon and many others. In fact, Martin Luther said this, "'Blessed are they who die not only for the Lord as martyrs, not only in the Lord as believers, but likewise with the Lord as breathing forth their lives in the words, into thy hand I commit my spirit.'" How wonderful that is. Now, I move on down. Verse 7, he says, "...I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities." Now, I'm going to change verse 7 just a little. "...thou hast seen my trouble, and thou hast seen my soul in adversities." I like that better. Twice he says it. And this is a great comfort to know God sees you in your trouble. You remember that he said to Moses when he wanted to deliver the children of Israel, he says, I've seen their affliction. I've heard their groaning. I know their condition. I've come down to deliver them. And it is said of the Lord Jesus, you remember that when those apostles of his were out there in the storm and the dead of night, that midnight on that Sea of Galilee, waves are rolling high, and they thought they were through, by the way. And it says, he saw them toiling and rowing. I like that. He sees you and me today. Why wonderful this is. Now let me move on down in the psalm, verse 9. Now we come to a prayer. And he says here, have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. Are you in trouble, friends? Instead of whining around and telling everybody else about it, why don't you go to him and say, Lord, I'm in trouble. That's what David did. He just went to the Lord. He says, I'm in trouble. Now, I'll have to drop down. Verse 15, my times are in thy hand. That's an interesting expression. My times are in thy hand. great many people go to fortune tellers, have their palm read. And this line means this, and this line means something else, which is all actually perfect nonsense, but it affords a living for some people and others that are trying to get rid of the money. This is just another way of getting rid of it. But our times are written in his hands. The Scripture says it. My times are in thy hands. Those are crucified hands. You can see my sin there in his hand. And may I say to you, those are the tender hands of a shepherd that picked up a lost sheep and put it on his shoulder. My care, protection are in those hands. And someday he's coming with blessing 
And those hands will bless. My friend, may I say, my times are in his hands. Then verse 16, "...make thy face to shine upon thy servant." That's a lovely expression. And the Hebrew commentator, way back in ancient times, he says the face of God is his anointed, the Messiah. You see, God's a spirit. I don't know how he looks, don't know how he feels, how he acts. But the Lord Jesus came down here, and he's the face of God. I like that. The little girl one night, she didn't want to go upstairs and go to bed by herself. Mother took her up, put her to bed, and then left her, and the little girl began to whimper. And the mother said, now, listen, you go to sleep. God is up there with you. And she wanted somebody to stay with her. And mother says, God's up there with you. And the little girl says, I know, but I want somebody with a face. Friends, that's what all of us need and want. All of us little children down here want somebody with a face with us. Jesus Christ is the one. Oh, what a wonderful psalm. Isn't it too bad that we have to leave this psalm? But the last word, listen to it, verse 19. Oh, how great is thy goodness. My friends, we're going to come to a psalm later on. The Lord is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Have you ever told anybody how good God is? I find people that they like to talk about their neighbors or their children or their father and mother or their relatives or their boss or their preacher and say, my, how good he is. But have you ever told anybody how good God is? He's good, friends. Oh, how good he is. Now we come to Psalm 32, and oh, here is another wonderful psalm. This psalm has been called by many a spiritual gem, and it has been misunderstood. It's called a psalm of David, a mass kill. Now, what is a mass kill? The word means giving instruction. Or it means to understand. And it's quite interesting how that word, that Hebrew word, is used especially as it relates to the future of Israel. And I think some of these seminaries today that have gone intellectual, and they're depending on high-powered personality and a promotion program and a good personality and that type of thing, to put them over. And they're emphasizing the intellectual. Here's a psalm it'd be nice if they'd come to and they'd find out that God has a future for Israel and that it requires a little spiritual gumption to get the point, by the way. Now, I want you to see how this word is used in connection with the nation Israel. In Daniel 11:33, we read, and they that understand among the people, that is Israel, shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, by spoil many days. Did you notice that? And they that understand, masculine is the word here. And again, Daniel says, and some of them of understanding, masculine, shall fall, shall try them, and to purge and make white. Even to the time of the end, you notice Daniel uses the time of the end, never the end of time. He says the time of the end because it is yet for appointed time. You see, understanding is to the future. And again, Daniel in chapter 12, verse 3, 
He says, And they that be wise, masculine, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And then down in verse 10 he says, Many shall be purified, made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wicked. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise, the masculine, shall understand. And how wonderful this is. Now, when you come to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, in speaking of this time of trouble, it's coming in the future for the nation Israel, in Matthew 24 and 25, he goes back and quotes Daniel as being the sign of the end of the age. What is it? He says that when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. I'm not looking for abomination of desolation. I don't even know what it is. And I've read quite a few books by men who thought they knew what it is. Some of them, it took them two or three chapters to make it clear they didn't know what it was. I can just say it in one sentence. I don't know what it is. Now, will you notice? I'm not looking for the abomination, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, will you notice? And the Lord added to this, Whoso readeth, let him, what? Understand. This psalm that we're coming to now is a psalm of instruction, understanding. Ought to be helpful to many of us. Now, we have here another reference to it. Over in Revelation, from chapter 6 to 18, and we'll have to wait till we get there to talk about it, but that covers the same ground that the Olivet Discourse does, and it covers the ground of the Great Tribulation period. Now, in the 13th chapter, where we have the two beasts revealed, and the empire, that great world dictatorship that's coming, we read at the end of that chapter, here is wisdom. Let him that hath what? Understanding. Masculine. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beasts. And then again, there have been books written on that number, 666. You want to know what the number means? Will you listen? I can give you an answer. I don't know. And I can add to that a little P.S. And these folk that are writing to tell you what 666 means, they don't know either. They just think they know. You see, it will be in that day that God will reveal it to his people. Now, this is a masculine psalm. It's a psalm of instruction for us. Now, it's been called a penitential psalm. That is, that it's the confession of David. I disagree with that. The 51st psalm that we'll be coming to is David's prayer of confession and for forgiveness. And it's when David prayed after Nathan said to him, Thou art the man, and David made his confession. Now, the 32nd psalm here is the record of the confession made and the forgiveness that he received and the blessedness of his complete restoration. Now, may I say to you, in the 51st psalm, David, you remember, said that if God would forgive him, he says, "...then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee." Now, friends, in Psalm 32, David is giving you his instruction. He says, "...then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee." Now, that's what he's doing in the 32nd Psalm. 
He's teaching us. So it's not a penitential psalm, but it's a psalm of instruction. And it, therefore, should hit a very happy note. In fact, it begins with that. And you have here in verse 1, Psalm 32 now, "...blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered." Now, you see, he's instructing us here. What he's uh, attempting to do is he's telling us here of the fact that he's been forgiven and that he had made his confession and he'd received forgiveness and there was complete restoration and he'd found shelter in God and he was given a song of deliverance. All of this is here. Blessed is he. Now, that word blessed, again, is the word happy. Asherah, the Hebrew. We have had that one time before, way back in the first psalm, and that opens the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Now, the blessedness that was in that first psalm, that was the blessedness that only a perfect man can enjoy. Believe me, I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. And it speaks, actually, of the Lord Jesus. He was the perfect man. Blessed is the man that walketh not, that standeth not, that sitteth not. But then it tells what he does. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And that law condemns us. didn't condemn him at all. Now, the law written in commandments and ordinances cannot give man blessedness. It demands a perfect obedience which man cannot obtain and it does pronounce a curse on him. Galatians 3.10. Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And there's no man that can honestly stand up and say that he measures up. Now, if you do, you can ask the Lord Jesus to move over from the right hand of God that that's your seat and for him to sit on the left-hand side that you want the right-hand side because you are perfect. Well, you are not and I'm not, but he is. Now, that's a blessedness. Happy is that man. Well, now, what about here is a blessedness here and a happiness. And what kind is it? Christ died for our sin. And in his blessed death as the substitute of sinners, he met and satisfied the righteousness of God so that the holy God can now be a just God and a Savior. He can be just and the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus. Now, therefore, when faith is exercised in him, it's counted for righteousness. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And it's recorded that way. Now, in this way, thousands of Old Testament believers, going back and beginning with Abraham, and even before they were saved in anticipation of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is this we have here? We have here the blessedness of a man whose sin has been forgiven. You know what kind of happiness that is? Do you know what joy that is? And now, here is a very wonderful thing as we open this psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered, and covered by the blood of Christ. Now, blessed is the man, happy is the man, unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no God. Now, he doesn't impute sin, doesn't make sin, over to the sinner who trusts Christ. That sin was put on Christ, and he's been delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. He knew no sin, but he was made sin for us, that we might be made righteousness of God in him. What a wonderful thing. And so David relates his experience here, how he tried to hide his sin, how he kept silence. Listen to him now. When I kept silence, my bones became old through my roaring all the day long. David sat on the throne. He looked around over that crowd, and he said, I think he smacked his lips and said, Nobody here knows. <laughs> Nobody knows about my sin. I've got it pretty well hidden. But he says, My conscience bothered me, and even I had a bone ache. His bones even bothered him. And he began to lose weight. And the friends around him became uneasy. And they felt that he needed to go see the doctor, that he probably was suffering from some great disease. And then what did he do? Well, he kept just going through that. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. And if you're a child of God, you can sin, but you can't get by with it. That's the difference. The man in the world will get by with it. That is, temporarily. But the child of God can't get by with it even temporarily. You remember Paul says, if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. But what if we don't judge ourselves? Well, we're going to be judged. He'll deal with it. He takes his own child to the woodshed. One day, that man, Nathan, came in and says, I've got a little story to tell you, David. David says, well, I like a good story, and it's a lull in state business. What is it? So he told David this story. My, David got worked up over that because he felt it was a true story. And he thought, where's a man in my kingdom that would do that? And this red-headed king stood up, and he was going to execute the man that would do a thing like that, take another man's little ewe lamb and slay it, leave that poor man in poverty. And Nathan pointed the finger when David said, Who's the man? And Nathan said, Thou art the man. You are the one. Your number's up, brother. <laughs> you are the one. And David confessed it. Listen to him. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. This is good instruction here for you and me, is it not? You're out of fellowship with God today, and you wander the way back? This is instruction for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, notice here how wonderful it is to have a hiding place. Actually, all of us need a blanket, not the one in the little cartoon Peanuts. He has a blanket. But all of us need a hiding place, a place that we can go. And he speaks of it here, that God is his refuge in a hiding place. Let me read verse 6. For this shall every one that is godly 
pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come near unto him. Now, you remember, and I think he's referring back here to Noah. Remember, Noah was in the ark when the flood came. And the very flood that destroyed the others just lifted him up because he was in the ark. And the waters of judgment couldn't reach him. Now, there's coming another time of great judgment upon this earth. It won't be water to be fire this next time. We're told it's a time of darkness, though, and of trouble. And it's a wonderful revelation that we have here. Now, what can you do in a time like this? Thou art my hiding place. Today, do you need a hiding place? Well, God's your hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. Stop looking and listen is what that means. Think it over. It's a musical rest. And I have a notion that the orchestra didn't play it this time. And the chorus didn't sing. It was a time of silence that you could think things over. Think it over, friend. You lost fellowship with him. You need a hiding place. Now he says, verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I'll guide thee with mine eye, God says. And you've got to be very close to the Lord if he's going to guide you with his eye. Now, here to me is humor in the Bible, but it's good humor. He says, "...be ye not like the horse or like the mule that have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee." This is really humorous. And I think you could write this verse, which I have done, over the little book of Esther, which teaches the providence of God. A lot of Christians today do not know what it is to... I'm looking for a word, and I'm not sure what it is. I almost feel like saying they do not orbit in the will of God. They are way out yonder in space, and God's going to guide them. You're not afloat in space, my friend. By his providence, he'll overrule you. And therefore, that's like putting a bit in a mule's mouth old hard-headed mule, why, you have to guide him. And a man was telling years ago down in Texas, I heard him tell this story, it was a preacher. He said that he acted as if this really happened to him. I don't think it did, but it's a good story. Nevertheless, he said he was visiting a man, and this man had a mule, one of these little donkeys. And he hitched him up, and they were going to go out and visit somebody. And he said that before they got in the wagon, he reached in the wagon, took out a two-by-four, went up in front, and he hit this mule on the head, and then came back and put it in the wagon. And he said, why in the world do you do that? He says, I do that to get his attention. Friends, there are a lot of us like that today. And the Scripture uses that expression, says, don't be like a mule. Let God instruct you. And we need that kind of instruction today. And it closes on the high note, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. And really and truly, whoever you are, wherever you are, however you are, right now, just can't you lift your heart in great joy to God. Now we come in Psalm 33, we come to an orphanic psalm, an orphan psalm. And we see here the inner experiences of the righteous. And I think that this psalm reveals praise to God 
We find the praises of a redeemed people and the praise of his word and of his work in creation and the praises for those. And we have for the first time the mention of musical instruments that were used. We've had it in the introduction before, but here it's in the psalm itself. And we read now, this is an orphanic psalm, which means we do not know the author. This is the one psalm in this little segment of psalms David did not write. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is befitting to the upright. Now, here's the psalm of praise, to rejoice in the presence of God. When I said that David didn't write it, I should not have put it quite like that. We don't know who wrote it. David could have written this one. Now, will you notice? Praise the Lord with the harp. Sing unto him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Now, that instrument of ten strings is a wonderful instrument. These guitars today that are being used in music and being brought into church, not one of them has ten strings on it. When anybody learns to play an instrument of ten strings... I say, let's bring it into church. But until you can play on that many, I don't care who you are. I'm not sure it should be brought in. The harp and the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Now, what is that new song? I'd like to spend time with this, but I'm not going to be able to spend time with it. But several of the Psalms talk about a new song that is coming up. And I think that when we get to the time of that new song, there's going to be a new singer. I'm going to have my new body. Then I think I'll be able to sing. I want to. I hope the Lord let me sing in heaven. Now, verse 9 of chapter 5. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof. Thou wast slain, hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now, this song here is a song praising God that he's the creator and that he's given us his word. But the new song coming up in heaven, we're going to sing because he is our redeemer. And then again, we find in Revelation 14, 3, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and so on. So that a new song is coming up and we'll have some new singers then. I'm sure some of us that can't sing today will be in on that. Now we are told here, sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud voice. And friends, I do believe if you're going to sing, you ought to be good at it before you get up before a group of people. Church music is in sad state today. I get around to many churches, and I think that a lot of folk ought not to be singing. And the second thing is, I think it ought to be a gift from the Lord. Now, it may not be that you're a trained musician, but you should be dead sure you're doing this for the profit, for the building up of the church. And unless it does that, it shouldn't be an exercise in futility of trying to hit high C when you can't even hit high A or B. Now, let's look at this very wonderful psalm that we have here as we move on in it. Now, we read that here they sing a song, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. The word of God and the works of God, and his works are creation. 
Now, will you notice verse 6? And here is a marvelous verse. Do you want to know how God created the heavens and the earth? All right, this verse will tell you how. You may not know any more after I read it than you did before, but you'll at least know how God did it. Listen to this. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You know, the word of God is powerful. I saw a demonstration of a singer that broke two or three glasses by hitting a high note. But God used his voice not to destroy, but to create. And he spoke this universe that's in existence today just by his word. He said, let there be light. And you know, there's power in light. Electrical power is there. Electronic power. All kinds of power today. And you know how that all came into existence? God spoke. It's his word. Now, do you know any more than you did before? I don't, but I know God did it. That's the important thing. He tells us here how he did it. And now I must drop down in this psalm in verse 10. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the nations to naught. He maketh the devices of the people to no effect. I wish that we could put this verse up at the United Nations instead of the one they've got there. They've got the wrong one there of beating swords into plowshares because they're not doing much beating there. They're beating each other, but not swords into plowshares. But this one would be great. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the nations to naught. Witness the past, the League of Nations. You remember that? And then even before the League of Nations, the Hague Conference on Peace, all of it came to naught. You want to know something? Now, I know I'll get letters of criticism on this, but the United Nations is coming to naught, friend, because they've left God out altogether. Now, here is a great verse, and I'd love to put this up in Washington. I'd like for the president to see it. Oh, the Congress ought to see this one. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That ought to be put up up there somewhere because it's nowhere around right now. Now, will you notice, verse 13, "...the Lord looketh from heaven and beholdeth all the sons of man." He sees you. Verse 16, "...there is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength." Napoleon said that God is on the side of the greatest battalion. But he demonstrated he was wrong. <laughs> Because at the Battle of Waterloo, he had the battalions, but he lost. God is not on the side of the one that has the biggest bomb, by any means. Now, will you notice here, the psalm goes on, verse 18, "...behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, upon those who hope in his mercy." How wonderful this is. And verse 21, "...for our heart..." shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. May I make a suggestion? Why don't you saturate yourself with the psalm? Now, I'm going to say something that's not nice, but I'm going to say it. Instead of running around today, friends, attending all of these conferences to tell you about new methods of running the Sunday school and running the church and of doing this and that, why don't you stay home and read the psalm? Get saturated with this portion of the Word of God 
and it'll bring comfort to your heart, and it'll solve 99 and 4 tenths percent of the problems that you and I are having today and the church is having today. This is a rich area of the Word of God. Oh, how we need today to saturate ourselves with this particular section of the Word of God that it might become meaningful to us, might enter into our lives, might be translated into shoe leather today. And these Psalms get right down where the rubber meets the road. 